uh, I wasn't selected a few times and kind of got to the point where I thought, well, I guess I won't be selected. But um, another board came up and I thought, well, he always said, just keep trying. So, so I did. And then here I got selected and kind of turned into a post-military career for me, which was great. You know, I think that's a common theme. If you just keep pushing on the doors, it may or may not open, but other things will open and you're better for it for trying, I think. I want to be my current self from this point forward. I want to learn how to play piano. Working with human beings. Drinking wine in the middle of the day. I want to be a Driver. I'm going to be the next greatest painter. Just kind of work with kids, getting them ahead in life. I want to be a welder. I want to be a beach bum. I want to be a baseball player. Brewmaster. A winemaker. Professional snuggler. Let me mention those sweet, hot lavender baths and writing in the evening. What's up, everybody? This is Blake Fletcher, the Half Hour Intern. In today's episode, I interview Sean DiSorafino, who is one of the cooler jobs we've ever had here on the show, an experimental test pilot. So Sean is a former military pilot and is now an experimental test pilot, testing both airplanes and helicopters. So any sort of like new fancy technology that they want to put into a plane or just a completely new fancy plane altogether or helicopter, um, Sean is the guy that makes sure that these things aren't going to crash and burn and that um, any sort of the cool ideas that researchers are thinking up and then engineers are coming up with, he goes and makes sure that they are all working out correctly and gives them his feedback and everything. So without further ado, here is Experimental Test pilot sean thanks so much for coming on the show man i'm excited to be here yeah dude so why don't we start out with like just what exactly is an experimental test pilot versus just being a pilot versus being like a military pilot versus being a test pilot like what experimental test pilot sounds really cool like what differentiates you i guess so uh an experimental test pilot in general the the reason you you have an experimental test pilot is because anytime a human being interacts with a machine, the human being has to compensate for essentially um, inefficiencies in a machine. So, for example, I don't know if you eat toast, but most people who use a toaster don't use, um, like, they don't use the selection of four or five, they use 4.2 or something, because that's how they know after burning toast three or four times what they like. Yeah. So if a machine was perfect, you'd have a setting that said lake. And, and you just set it to Blake and you're happy. So what happens though, if you were able to talk to the person who built the toaster and the engineer and you say, well, I kind of like it crispy and I kind of like it golden, the engineer wouldn't understand what you're talking about. So what the experimental test pilot would do if there was a toaster experimental test pilot is he's trained in a particular way, he or she are trained in a particular way to be able to articulate the needs of the user to the needs of the, to the technical language so that it can be produced in a better way or the deficiencies can be explained. So I, I don't have technical language for toast, but I might say the burn ratio needs to be X. <laughs> and, and they'd say, oh, okay. That's what he means by golden brown. It's interesting. So basically what you're saying is the engineers on any particular topic, and this obviously makes sense, can be can kind of like lose the forest through the trees, as it were. Like they're so deep into this thing that it's hard for them to relate to just straight up usability and stuff. So they need someone like you to, yeah, just in essence, know how well this just actually works for a person on the other end. Exactly. So, and they have all kinds of other considerations that we don't think about. So there's, um, so just sticking with the toaster analogy, there's uh, electrical regulations that the country has. So they can't use any kind of electricity. They have, uh, a you know, they have a schedule because their boss says, we need a new toaster with a better look by Christmas. 
and they have maybe uh, aesthetic limitations for a toaster because it can't look ugly. It has to sell. So that's the things they're thinking about. Well, when it gets to, to Blake, he's like, I just really wanted a 4.8 <laughs> and that's all I want. So yeah, that's so interesting that you say that because this is literally something that I was just thinking about the other day when, of all things, I was playing a video game and video games go through tons and tons of playtesting, you know, and years and years of trying to refine this thing to cut out all sorts of different issues that you have. And yet then sometimes I'll be playing a game and there'll be something that's so glaringly obvious to me, like, well, this game would have just been so much more fun or so much easier or whatever it is. If they just did this one thing, why didn't they just do this one thing? And I guess the answer is because you're forgetting the 10,000 other things that they also had to think about. Like they can't, you know, it looks like just one thing to you because now you're on the receiving end of this like perfect finished polished product, but it's not just one thing. Like in the scope of when they were making it, it's a million things that they had to keep in mind. Exactly. And that's, and obviously the more complex the machine or the more types of uses, the more you have to compromise between the the ideal design for a particular use or a particular person and the best design for the broad use and the broad mission. Yeah. Interesting. So let's talk about your the job in general then. So like do you what percentage of your day are you flying? What percentage of your day are you talk like talk about the prep before flights? Talk about the I assume you have to make like reports and stuff for people afterwards. Yeah. So um the percentage of day flying actually if if people are out there and they're excited about being a pilot and being an experimental test pilot. It's, I think it's an amazing job, but if they're just thinking about the flying aspects, it's very limited. In fact, you fly in a way less than, well, certainly less than let's say an airline pilot or someone who that's just their job every day because we're the technical representatives of the pilot community. Uh, you generally are, are assigned to, you'll be assigned to maybe one or two projects or possibly three at the same time. And they're in different stages. And so before the test article gets to you, there's a lot of preparation. Some of that might be um, financial. So they might be trying to cost estimate how much this is going to cost to test. And so as one element of that, the pilot, they might come to you and say, well, how, many, how far do you think you have to go to do this? And how many hours would do you think it would take? And what kind of personnel would you need on board to test? Um, there's many other categories that would be answering that question. So at the very beginning of the project, you have a limited, maybe a five or 10% of your day spent on that. As it ramps up towards tests, that becomes more like 50% of your day as you're doing specific test planning. Mm-hmm. So, you, so you, along with a flight test engineer or a group of people, will will start planning out the test and trying to make it as efficient as possible. And then, of course, once the once the test article arrives and you start testing, it's a little bit more like 75 to 80 or maybe even hundred percent of your day. And that's when you actually start flying. And so you can get on a roll where you're flying every day or four or five times a week. Um, I just came off a project where I was doing probably 30 hours a month of in the air. Um, but then since that time, I, let's see, I haven't flown since May 5th, for example, except for in a commercial aircraft as okay. a passenger. Okay. So, and, and, you know, I'm starting kind of to ramp up my next project. So, Obviously, um, your results were vary based on the type of test flying you're doing, but it's just it's kind of a constant ebb and flow. So when you talk about the tests, are they um, are they sending you up there and just being like, 
Hey Sean, just give us your thoughts on this uh, on this plane or on this helicopter, or is it like there are very specific tests? Like um, we want you to go up and do this thing and tell us how this thing works when you you know like you have parameters of what exactly you should be doing. Yeah, they're very specific tests, so they kind of um, the general answer to your question is it's very specific. So they have a, a test condition matrix or a big database and broken down by each speed and each. Um, altitude you need to be at, each weight you need to be at, each fuel state you need to be at. And um, as you as you knock those off, you kind of move from that one to the next one. Um, periodically, we'll have some categories of tests where uh, we could probably talk about it more extensively, but called handling qualities, where it would be do kind of a normal task and just give me your impressions and tell me how hard it is to do that task. But even those, usually you try to make it a distinct portion of your task. So um, for example, if you were to ask someone how hard it is to drive through a busy supermarket parking lot, you just say, well, how hard is it? Well, what is the hardest part? Well, it's trying to find the, it's trying to find the parking space and avoiding people walking out in front of you or something like that. You know? right. So you, you kind of, you kind of talk about that little aspect of it and why is it, why is that difficult? You know, so. Okay. And when if you are going up for a specific thing like let's say your exact example of driving in a in a like supermarket parking lot and that's uh and but but you're in the supermarket parking lot and they're like hey we just want you to tell us if the left turn signal works well and you come back from your flight and you're like yeah the left turn signal works pretty well dude that supermarket parking lot is pretty crazy i don't you know and you start giving them that other feedback are they just kind of like Shut up, Sean. Like, we don't, we don't care about the other stuff. We, all we need to know is what's going on with the left turn signal. Um, no, the, the latter is probably, or actually the former is the case where if you discover something outside of what your test condition was, you know, it depends on what it is. It could just be something you just note to yourself or what have you. You have a, you know, an extensive debrief. And then sometimes it's a matter of, because sometimes in tests you're developing or you're dealing with a new article, a new test article. So, um, it could be that part of the part of the aircraft is instrumented in a way or designed in a way that's not even like the old aircraft. So you may just it may be a lack of understanding. So sometimes you have to go back to the subject matter experts and say, "Is the arrow supposed to go up when I do this, or is it supposed to go down?" Wow! Yeah. And then they so say, funny. "Oh, it's supposed to go up." And then I'll say, "Well, I don't like that because I think that when you push the stick forward, the arrow should go up." And right. that's and so kind of talking about how we have technical words, we say that's improper operative sense. So, um, I know I use automobiles a lot because everybody interacts with them. If you went to to lower a window in a rental car and you pushed down and it went up, you'd say, "Hey, that's that's wrong." <laughs> well, now but, I'm going to say that's improper operative sense. I'm going to start using that all sense. the time. Exactly. I love that. Um, so anyway, I, I guess I didn't finish answering your question, which is. If, it's, if it raises to the level of it's a concern, you'd have a problem report. There's a tracked um, process. I'm sure every uh, company and military organization has a different way of doing it, but you'd, um, you'd have a tracked element. It goes back to different subject matter experts. Depending on what it is, they might test it in the lab and say, is that what it's supposed to do? And then usually you prioritize them. So if it's a kind of a safety issue, obviously it goes to a high priority and they fix it. If it's a, if it's a, if it's, you just don't like it, if it's a preference issue, they that goes way down low and you know obviously somewhere in between is where the money generally runs out to fix things so <laughs> and that's where i guess like i was saying about these video games that i'm playing that i'm like why didn't they take care of this it's like it was just too they had to release the game sometime and it you know it, it was too far down the list 
Exactly. And I mean, I'm not sure, you know, it, they have a joke about, you know, if you get 10 pilots in the room, you get 10 different opinions about how something should work. So possibly in your, the case you're talking about, if you put 10 gamers in a room and said, what is the best way to do this? They would call that like a crew station working group. And yeah. you, you'd get maybe six people agree with you and four, three don't or what have you. So, or someone would have a totally different idea. Right, right. So Sean, when you're doing these test flights and you're, you're working on this different stuff, is all of it super advanced stuff that's going to be coming out like 10 years from now? Or is some of it just like, Hey, here's, you remember that, uh, you know, this, this totally normal helicopter over here? Well, we moved, we want to, let's say, move the, um, uh, some of like the controls on the panel around a little bit. So here's this new version with the controls on the panel moved around. You have to go and fly around that for a while. Uh, is that what some of your test pilot stuff is like? Like pretty boring, as it were? Yeah, I would say. I mean, to a large extent, it's it's never really boring because you're flying, so it's always fun to do. And I, honestly, a lot of times it's it's not just the flying, but it's the interacting with the people. It's the solving problems. But as far as the, you know, I think people sometimes ask me what I do and then they kind of get this vision in their head that Chuck Yeager's breaking the sound barrier. And in fact, it's more like the, uh, the old Verizon commercial where you're, can you hear me now? (laughs) So so there's many times when you go out and you say, well, how, how far will this radio work at this altitude? And so you go to 10 miles, you go to 15 miles, 20 miles, et cetera, and you test it. So it's, it's just part of the job. So it's a lot of incremental improvements over past versions. Not a lot of like you flying in UFOs. Correct. Correct. Yeah. Dang. All right. So maybe one day we'll have like a UFO test pilot or something. And that would be, uh, that'd be pretty awesome. Um, so it sounds like this is all pretty safe. Have you ever had any like dangerous experiences when you've been out there flying? Like, are there ever any, like some of the things that you're flying are so advanced that they just kind of like rock your world as it were? Well, it's interesting because probably that's the next question people ask is they, is, is the word danger comes up. And in fact, in test flying, it's probably much safer than than others' forms of flying because so much, you know, it's really not dangerous risk. So everything is a risk level. And I know this is probably overly stated that it's more dangerous to drive down the street than to uh, get on an airliner, but it's it's in fact true. So, so that's why people say it. Right. So you're accepting risk. So what people what we do is um, if it's a benign test point. Um, there's not as much consideration to this, but well, there's always consideration to the risk, but if you approach a little bit more aggressive test point, let's say that drives a process, which requires incremental buildup such that, um, you know, you're approaching it in a safe fashion. And in fact, you'll have people watching you both from inside the aircraft. You may have a chase aircraft following you. You often have what they call telemetry, which is all the instrumented data coming back to a, to a room where people are watching people with specific um, co- areas of concentration are watching particular parameters so that you know as you approach this that you can define where the end point is. So often, you know, it's the people who kind of operate the aircraft out in the, in the open where, you know, when you're not in that kind of form where it's a little bit more risk if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. You're kind of like flying around in bubble wrap. Yeah, exactly. So how did this all even happen for you, Sean? Like I can't imagine the path to becoming an experimental test pilot. Yeah. So it's a, it's experimental test pilot is a pretty unique and a slice of life. So there's really a couple ways to do it, but 
in general, like the broadest path is, I would say, I guess probably 85% of us are ex-military pilots. And that's simply because the requisite time you need with a complex aircraft is would be so expensive to develop on your own that it's just almost impossible to get there. Right. Um, generally, to be an experimental test pilot, you've attended, you usually have an engineering degree, a uh, bachelor's degree, and you've attended one of the recognized test pilot schools. So I went to U.S. Naval Test Pilot School. So I was a Navy pilot. I was flying. I met a guy that was a test pilot. I was doing some um, limited testing, and I kind of liked that. It, it was sort of my, um, it fit my personality type and skill set, I guess. Mm-hmm. And talked to him about it. And he said, "Oh, you got You should apply for test pilot school." He explained it to me, and so um, it's a competitive application. And I failed to get in several times, and then eventually one day, I actually had kind of given up that I would get in, and um, I got selected. So I was able to go. Um, and we could talk about that if you want, but the other, the other path, just to finish my thought is some people are so experienced from other areas that they become, you know, generically call them a wavered test pilot because they worked in an industry or they worked in the military in a certain way and were kind of got involved in a lot of tests and maybe were the second pilot in a lot of tests and, and have so much broad experience that they, um, are kind of grandfathered in, I suppose, as a, as a test pilot. So those are people provide a, an extreme amount of experience there. They, they tend to be a little bit more narrow focused because they have a, a specific expertise on a specific aircraft. Right. But, but um, you kind of need both. You need a little bit of the academic and then you need a little bit of the um, experience driven. So would a commercial pilot ever be able to become an experimental test pilot or you need a pilot with like a much more diverse set of skills? So um, yeah, a commercial pilot could be a, a, an experimental test pilot if they, well, if they had, attended school in the military. Many times you'll find your commercial pilots were also military pilots for the same reason I said before, just the expense of getting to the point of um, being able to operate the machines they operate. But um, they probably, I'm not sure within, for example, airlines, they might have a stable of their own test pilots that do certain things. So there's probably some nuanced paths that I'm not covering, but generically they would probably have to work for a commercial aircraft manufacturer and then they would probably be along the wavered path that we're talking about. Okay. Okay. So talk to us about what are some of the most like common things that you pay attention to when you are doing a test flight? Well, so testing, if there's any um, professionals out there, there might be, they, they, they might say, Oh, there's actually seven categories, but I'd kind of break it down into sort of five categories. And so, there's performance, there's stability, there's handling qualities, there's what we call PVI, pilot-to-vehicle interface, or human-machine interface, and then there's systems. So performance would be, and each, each time you, you may be doing one or two of these categories, but you're typically not doing all of them. So performance is kind of like, how many miles per gallon does my car get? And so when you do those types of tests, they tend to be very stable um, you know, you drive out on the freeway, you know, when, when you look at your miles per gallon, they just show you city and highway, but to an airline pilot, for example, it's very important what the in-betweens are because they have to plan the minimum amount, the minimum amount of fuel to be safe to get from, let's say LA to Hawaii. Mm, yeah. So you have to understand it at a more, uh, distinct level what fuel is going to do when you're at different altitudes, et cetera. Yeah. So, so a performance test would be 
flying a really stable condition for a long time under a very particular weight, et cetera, and a particular density, air density quality and taking a lot of data. And then they create the charts that help pilots and, you know, pilots who use the aircraft in the future say, well, today it's um, 25 degrees C and I'm climbing to this altitude. So what can I expect my fuel burn to be, for example, or how fast can I go or where would I stall at? So that's performance. Um, stability is a little bit more about it's, it's the characteristic of the aircraft that uh, makes it um, maneuverable essentially. So if you think about, if you wanted to drive, I guess you're in San Francisco, if you wanted to drive along uh, Highway 1, you might want to drive in a Cadillac because it's nice and big and stable. But if you want to drive on a curvy road, you'd want to drive in a Porsche, which is maneuverable. But they kind of have different missions, if that makes sense. So right, right. De- depending on the type of aircraft you're flying, you, you go out and do particular tests to understand its stability in different ways. Um, handling qualities are kind of the in-between where you say, well, how do I, how do I like it? You know, how does it fly? How does it perform the mission? And, and how difficult is it to do it? And how much spare capacity do I have once I'm doing it? So some, there's some things that you can do, but they're very difficult and they take all your effort to do. And so that's, that's a way of rating that. Hmm. So I don't know if I'm going too deep into this for you, but this is kind of no, what you're this, looking yeah, at. Yeah, this is perfect. So um, human machine interface is more what we talked about before with the switches and switchology Um you know, talking about boring things to do. I mean, it can even come down to when you put a flight glove on, can you actuate this button or can you feel the difference between this button and that button? And so you'll work in that realm. You'll work with, um, there's psychologists who are very familiar. That's kind of the subject matter expert with switchology and what, what makes people illuminated. So what would, if we wanted to have an alert signal audio wise, what, what sound is going to alert the person and bring them out of their, you know, to bring the attention to the place they wanted to, or what colors are appropriate. No way. That's so funny. So they have like all kinds of people on board to try to like, yeah, make this the right product. Well, they like the, like the psychologist probably wouldn't be on board, but they'd be in the labs and they'd be, um, for example, um, sorry, I didn't mean on board. Like, uh, yeah, I just mean like on board the project. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So they're, they're, um, yeah, there, it's just, I mean, it's a, there's a lot of nuances to the, to the whole thing to make a product exactly how you like it. So, and then the last is uh, probably the most, I think I'm listing them in probably most exciting and most boring, but um, some of us nerdy type test pilots get into that human machine interface stuff. So I do, but the last being systems is a little bit more, I don't know. You remember they put out a new phone a while back and it was kind of bending in people's pockets or they, maybe it gets too hot or the right. batteries being used too fast. So that tends to be a little bit more about how when you incorporate a new device in an aircraft, well, how does it interact with the other items? Is it the proper temperature? Is it the proper weight and those types of things? So that's kind of it. So when you ask, what are you paying attention to? It depends upon the project and it depends upon how deep you're getting into it. Yeah. But those are kind of the big classifications. So that's interesting. So you mentioned kind of uh, like the fact that you'd like to nerd out on some of this stuff a little bit. Like, is this, do you feel like this path in life has changed you a little bit? Like you mentioned the toaster example you gave earlier was really useful and interesting, but do you feel like you now look at toasters different? You know what I'm saying? Like you're looking at everything, like I wonder who, you know, and like, why didn't they think about this and blah, blah, blah. 
that's kind of the big joke when you when you graduate from test pilot school because you spend essentially a year just analyzing everything. And then uh, I remember in my graduation party, uh, one of my classmates made a video, and then he's walking down the the, the grocery aisle, and his grocery cart is is fluttering, and he's saying, "Well, this just says, you know, it's it's um it's unstable in the front," and you know, he's kind of explaining all the reasons why it's just improper. So I think it does change you that way, yeah. Where you where you look at things differently. Yeah, that's interesting. It's got to be, you got to really try to keep yourself in check, I would imagine, just to be like satisfied with the world around you as opposed to overanalyzing everything. I'm not sure it gets that far. I just think it's anytime you're educated about anything, you it broadens your idea of what that thing is. True, definitely. It's kind of the old, um, I think they say the Inuit have seven words for snow because they because they live in snow all the time. So they understand snow to a level where I just say it's cold and white and they say, <laughs> you know, it's, it's this or that or this or that. So man, great analogy. Absolutely. So Sean, I know you can't really talk about specifics. Obviously that makes sense. Like with any of the aircraft that you're flying or anything, but how, how advanced or like how far out are some of these things that you're making versus or that you're testing versus what's in production? Like something I always like to think about since I live here in Silicon Valley is like, what is it like in like deep in the dungeons of Google? Like what kind of crazy stuff do they have that they're working on that we don't even know about? You know, like do they have crazy AI that's like ready to take over the world or whatever? Um, how advanced are some of the things that you ha- have worked on and are working on? So, uh, yeah, of course, the as you approach the really advanced things, um, I mean, one thing to think about is Google and, and those types of companies bringing things to market every year and being private companies have an ability to turn things really quickly. So in some ways, in those, kind, in those types of displays and things, they, they kind of lead the market because... Um, they can show you what's possible and they can, if, if something's a failure in their market testing, they can just delete it and move on to the next thing. Whereas when you're talking about an aircraft and the, the amount of money and particularly when you're talking about a military aircraft where there's taxpayer considerations, um, it has to be um, something that's going to last for a period of time. And then they also at times have to be ruggedized in a way, uh, ruggedized just means makes it stronger or what have you in a way that can, um, that can withstand flight and withstand some of the environments the flight might be in. But um, generally speaking, it's, it's actually, I can't speak generally. I think it's just, it matters on the complexity. Sometimes there's something that would be that someone would want to rush to market. So I think this is probably passe now, but airlines started putting Wi-Fi on, on airplanes. So if, to be competitive with the other airlines, each airline has to have that. So they could be a project where, where they maybe in six months from design to kind of test through the test portion, they could say, well, how can we get Wi-Fi on our old, our existing aircraft? And then there would be a period of time after that where they have to figure out how to go back and, and you know, when will, when will they plan in putting the Wi-Fi on the aircraft and when they come in through different maintenance cycles. But if you're talking about something very complex, like, Space, spaceship uh, or SpaceX or something that could be decades in the making. But I think probably um, you got to be thinking kind of in the three-year range from from the first concept of test to completion of test to completion of the data review to finally seeing it on the aircraft. So I guess we're kind of three years in advance, if that makes sense. 
Yeah, well, and what you just said is so interesting and probably almost nice for a lot of people to hear about the taxpayer consideration and everything. Because, yeah, obviously, Google can do whatever the hell Google wants to do with their money because it's their money, you know? I mean, yeah, they have shareholders as a public company and stuff like that. But um, it's nice to know that you guys don't just have some huge blank check from U.S. taxpayers to, you know, make uh, invisible planes flying around and stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a huge consideration every day because we have to be competitive uh, to the taxpayer and, and it has to be producible and producible in significant numbers, et cetera. So, um, and, and we're not marketing it to sell in the traditional sense. Now, with a commercial aircraft, that may be the case. You're marketing it to sell, but still you're talking about such a big um, item that it just takes you know years to, to produce. Yeah, interesting. Cool, man. Sean, well, why don't we um, go ahead and wind this thing down with uh, any sort of advice that you would give someone that wanted to become a pilot? Well, as far as being just a pilot, or I shouldn't say just a pilot, but I'm a pilot, I would highly recommend it for anyone. So there's a lot of levels of that. You could just go down to your local uh, fixed-based operator and sign up for rental lessons and do that. Um, if you're talking about more complex things, uh, the military is probably a high consider should be a high consideration of yours, not only to serve your country, but also because that's the opportunity you'll get where you're going to get immediately into um, more complex aircraft. So if you like flying, that's the way to do it. In fact, um, kind of an interesting thing about me is I didn't fly, or I think it's interesting. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't fly civilian planes before I got in the military. So the first aircraft I flew had retractable gear. It was a turbine powered aerobatic aircraft. And that's just how I learned to fly. So I've never kind of flown your traditional aircraft you'd see at the, um, at the airport. Wow. Awesome. So that is a possibility. So if there's people listening right now who are like, oh man, I don't really have the funds to go and try to, you know, fly by myself. And they, they are the type of person that would, would really like to maybe join the military or something. There is a chance that the military will just put you in a plane right away. You don't need to have had prior experience. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they, you'd, you'd obviously have to go through the correct acquisition to, to the military and get in the, the correct um, pipeline. So you'd be in a pilot pipeline. But yeah, they just taught me to fly from because they want to teach you the way um, you'd teach or the way the way excuse me the way they um, the way they want to teach you to fly. So, um, but to be an experimental test pilot, I guess the one thing I'd say is if there's pilots out there is to keep trying avenues because the, the advice the person gave me that interested me in it is just keep applying, keep applying. And, and I, I think I mentioned earlier that uh, I wasn't selected a few times and kind of got to the point where I thought, well, I guess I won't be selected, but um, another board came up and I thought, well, he always said, just keep trying. So, so I did. And then here I got selected and it's kind of turned into a post-military career for me, which was great. Dude. So I, I think, that. I think people, you know, I think that's a common theme. If you just keep pushing on the doors, it may or may not open, but other things will open and, uh, you know, just you're better for it for trying, I think so. Dude. Absolutely, man. Great advice. I'm so happy that, to leave off on that. That's awesome. Uh, Sean, thanks so much for coming on the show, man. This has been really interesting. Thank you. I really enjoyed it, Blake. Thanks. Hey, everyone. It's Blake. Hope you all enjoyed the episode. If you're sitting there thinking to yourself, I wonder how I could help Blake out. First of all, you are probably the nicest person in the entire world. Secondly, all you have to do is just tell a friend about the show. I would really appreciate it. If you're sitting there and thinking, man, my job is really interesting, or man, I do this totally badass hobby. I should totally be on this show then you totally should be on the show. Just reach out to me on halfhourintern.com, my website. You can email me through there. And uh, if there is another job or hobby that you don't do, but you just want to hear about it, you can submit any sort of idea through the Submit Your Ideas link on the page. Thanks again for listening. Take care.